Good evening, everybody. My name is Dr. Jeremy Dixon. I'm a uh, senior lecturer in social work at the University of Bath and also the co-director for the Centre of Death and Society. The Centre for Death and Society is a research centre which looks at all the social aspects around death and dying. And this evening we have the Beatrice Godwin Lecture, uh, which is uh, taking place annually to commemorate Beatrice Godwin, who is a previous PhD student with us. So Beatrice started her studies in Bath in 2003 and began a PhD in 2005. And her particular areas of interest were with working with people living with dementia. And she had a particular interest in the issues around communication and insight of people with advanced dementia and was very passionate about them being able to be seen as autonomous and uh, being able to make decisions and to communicate. So we have this annual lecture looking at uh, areas of dementia care and um, end of life care and we're very pleased this evening to be able to welcome uh, Dr Nathan Davis who is Associate Professor of Aging and Applied Health Research and also the Deputy Director for, of Centre of Aging uh, Population Studies at University College London. Uh, Nathan is also Deputy Director for the National Institute of Health Research Design Service at University College London. Uh, Dr Davis's interests are around aging, dementia, clinical decision-making, unmet complex needs and e-health and his work has focused on developing decision aids for people with dementia during COVID-19 and uh, this work has been implemented by uh, NHS England as guidance. Uh, Dr Davies and his team have won the Alzheimer's Society Dementia Hero Award for their research in 2021 in recognition of this work done during the period of COVID. Uh, his other works has included a decision aid for end-of-life care in dementia and a set of rules of thumbs for practitioners. So we're very pleased to have him here this evening and he's going to be talking on the topic of supporting good palliative care, uh, sorry, good supporting good palliative dementia care. Uh, just to say a little bit about um, how we can interact together this evening. Um, uh, you you can see us, but unfortunately we can't see you. Um, but we do have a Q&A box and we'd be very pleased if people uh, could put questions into the Q&A box, uh, which uh, Nathan will uh, respond to at the end of the talk. Um, Nathan's going to talk for about sort of 40 minutes or so, and then we've got time for questions and discussion. So please do uh, put questions in the, in the Q&A box and we'll, we'll pick those up uh, towards the end. I think you can also vote on them so uh, we can uh, identify those questions which are uh, most popular. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Nathan uh, so that he can uh, talk to us about this subject. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jeremy, and thanks for the invitation to come and speak to you tonight. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Just share my screen and hopefully you can all see that. Um, so as Jeremy said, yes, I'm uh, Nathan. I work at 
the University College London and I'm going to talk to you today about um, some of the research that I've been doing over the last few years about um, how we support um, good palliative dementia care, what, what's it look like and what's needed really. So I'm going to start off by setting the scene a little bit, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uncertainty um, and hopefully that will become a bit clearer what I mean by uncertainty as we go through the talk. Um, I'm going to talk about supporting carers and then moving on to supporting professionals and then about some of our latest work which is the Embed Care Programme which is a large uh, uh, ESRC and NIHR piece of work and that's the largest piece of palliative uh, dementia care funding that we that we are aware of in the UK and that's about a five million pound grant led by Liz Sampson and, and Catherine Evans um, uh, at Cicely Saunders Institute and then hopefully I'm going to pull it together a little bit and, and give you some concluding remarks. So I want to start off with instead of just listing and bullet pointing some facts about dementia or facts about palliative care I thought I'd be a bit more innovative this time a bit unlike me but I thought I'd give it a go um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about a YouGov poll that we've done. So as part of Embed Care, we've done a YouGov poll. So this was a survey of the general public. It was just over 2,100 people that were surveyed um, about a year ago now, so April 22. And we posed a series of questions to them um, and saw what they thought and whether they, they thought this was true or not. So we know, so if we start on the left-hand side, we know that there's treatments that can slow the progression of dementia for some types of dementia but there's not a cure it's a terminal condition when we asked the public about this only 42 percent of people knew that dementia was a terminal condition if we move on to the right so we know that the the latest national statistics show that dementia is the leading cause of death in the uk nine out of ten people weren't aware of that and i'm sure many people in this room today are possibly not aware of that as well so you're not alone by 2040 over 200,000 people will die with dementia each year, and that's more than double the current number. Only 7% of people were aware of that. And if we think about, well, what is palliative care and what do people understand about that? So palliative care improves the quality of life through addressing physical, psychosocial and family needs as well. Only half of the public um, understand that palliative care can have benefit for people with dementia. So it's Drawing from these kind of key ideas and key statistics from the YouGov poll, we can see that dementia is a terminal condition and yet a lot of people don't actually realise that. They don't realise that it's a terminal condition. And it's a big problem because it's now the leading cause of death in the UK. And this is going to continue to rise. So what is palliative care for dementia then? Um, and I haven't put a definition of palliative care on the slides today um, as I I hope that many of you will be aware of what palliative, what palliative care is, but thinking more specifically about what, what is palliative dementia care, there's not really a single sentence or definition that I could give you about what is palliative dementia care um, that would be sufficient, really. So um, a team led by the European Association for Palliative Care and Jenny van der Steen, who's a uh, professor in the Netherlands, uh, conducted a piece of work looking at well, what does what should good palliative care look like for people with dementia and so they did a consensus study so they gathered um, views from 64 experts across 23 different countries to say well what are the important domains of optimal palliative care for someone with dementia and these are the 11 domains that they come out with so they did a series they did 
about five rounds of consensus working up um, to get some agreement as to what were the, the optimal palliative care domains. So applicability of palliative care. So within that, then they talk about, well, is dementia applicable for palliative care? What does it look like? Person-centered care, shared care goals, continuity of care, prognostication and timely recognition of dying and so on. So these are the domains. And then within each of these domains, they have a series of recommendations for clinical practice, for policy um, and research going forward as well as to what this should look like. Now, the most important domains, according to the experts, were around optimal treatment of symptoms and providing comfort, um, and then person-centered care communication and shared decision-making. Now, if we think about dementia, um, these two, so the setting care goals and advanced care planning um, and family care and involvement are probably the most kind of um, emphasised in dementia compared to other conditions. So setting care goals and advanced care planning, so as someone with dementia, de their dementia develops, they are likely to lose uh, capacity and decisional making uh, abilities. So having those discussions early on and planning for the future is really important. Um, and similarly, family care and involvement is a really important aspect of palliative dementia care because of the burden that is quite often placed upon family carers. We know that caring for someone with dementia is one of the most demanding and stressful um, caring roles there are. Um, and we know that there's adverse health effects, um, both physical health, but also psychological effects on family carers. So this is from um, a letter that myself and, and Steve Eilip, who's a professor of um, uh, um, older people at UCL wrote a few years back now about well, why is palliative care for dementia different and in many ways it's not different in many ways palliative care um, for people living with dementia is no different they have the same needs they have the same uh, requirements but there are some differences here so what we know is that this was written back in 2016 and it's not changed much really it's often not recognized as a terminal illness and I showed that in the YouGov survey at the start um, there are a lot of losses that actually occur before the death of the individual. So they often lose a lot of their personality. So who they were, their personality changes quite a lot. And this again will depend on the type of dementia you've got as well. Um, a loss of personhood, a loss of autonomy, and a loss of capacity. Now, all this can lead to communication difficulties and, and them being able to express what they feel. So for example, a simple um, gold standard of assessing whether someone's in pain is, is self-report. So asking someone or expecting them to tell you if they're in pain, that's often not possible with someone who's got dementia, certainly towards the later stages anyway. Um, and then expectations and knowledge of families as well might be different. So like I said, a lot of people don't realise dementia is terminal. They don't realise that all the other physical um, issues that come along with it, it's not just memory. And a lot of people don't realise that. And also palliative issues can occur throughout the trajectory. And we know that someone can live with dementia for quite a number of years. So these are some of the, the ways in why, how it might be different. Um, so a couple of years ago, we did a, a review. We looked at lots of different research um, projects and studies that were published and looked at how they were defining end of life. So how was dementia defined, or how was end of life dementia defined in research studies, but also how was it defined in clinical practice? And the big problem we have here is because uh, dementia is potentially quite a long and very unpredictable trajectory. 
So what we tend to see with someone with dementia traditionally, although not in everyone, everyone is different, is this kind of um, dwindling effect. So we see that they will progressively get uh, worse and worse and decline their health condition declines. They'll have a series of little blips. So they might have a chest infection, for example, where there's a massive decline in their health. They go into hospital and then they get discharged um, a week or two later and their health comes back up to some level of health, but it never quite gets back up to the full health that they were in before they went to hospital. And we'll continue to see that um, dwindling down. That means that it's quite unpredictable and we often don't know when someone with dementia is, is at the end of life, or when they, they are going to die, unfortunately. And that makes prognosis very difficult. It makes planning difficult. It makes preparing people very di difficult as well. So those traditional definitions of end of life being the last uh, 12 months of life, for example, it's really difficult to say this person with dementia is in the last 12 months of life because we don't know quite often. But what we also know is that a lot of people who have dementia don't actually reach the advanced stages of dementia. They might die with something else um, from a cancer, for example, much earlier. So not everyone will reach those advanced stages. So we also can't say that um, end of life in dementia is when you're at the advanced stages. And we also know that people are less likely to receive palliative care because of this complex and this unpredictable disease trajectory. And this often means that there's a lot of unmet needs and potentially they receiving some burdensome, burdensome treatments right up until the end of life. So we were interested in how they were being defined. Now, there was a lot of inconsistent methods that were being used. There were some people who were relying on self-report and expecting carers to say that they're at end of life. There were some studies that were using um, some validated tools, so outcome measures. And that was the bulk of what we found was they were using these, these um, validated tools. So for example, the FAST, rule, um, FAST scale, which is around the functional assessment staging tool. And that has a series of different stages that someone goes through in dementia. Um, another one is the global deterioration scale. But what we found is that a lot of these scales focus either on cognition or function. What they miss is the holistic nature of it. So the holistic needs are ignored. So a lot of the tools like the FAST tool, for example, goes in a chronological progression. So first they start to have some cognitive difficulties. Then they have some difficulties with dressing themselves. Then they have some ur urinary incontinence. Then they'll have BW incontinence. Then they'll become bedbound. So expect you to go through a chronological order. But um, we know that's not always the case. Everyone is different. And so that chronological ordering doesn't always work. So what we've suggested is that actually we need to stop thinking about a time of, for end of life. We need to stop thinking about end of life as a set period of time. But what we need to think about is the holistic nature and the holistic needs of people living with dementia. So what we're saying is research and clinical practice needs to really adopt this kind of needs-based approach when thinking about um, supporting people with dementia. So in doing that, what this means then, that there is an element of uncertainty and not everyone is, is okay with that. Not everyone is comfortable with managing uncertainty whether that be professionals or whether that be carers. So we need to think about how we support people with this uncertainty, because this uncertainty will then come into how we make decisions about their care and their well-being. And that's what a lot of my work is really focused on. 
So thinking about family carers then, so how do we support them with this uncertainty um, around end of life and making decisions? And when we did our YouGov poll, so going back to this YouGov poll, um, we said to people, what do you want from dementia care? Um, and 57% of people said involving the person with dementia and their families in care and treatment decisions. So we know it's a big thing. They really want to be involved in those treatment decisions, in those care decisions. 53% people want good management and treatment of symptoms and providing comfort. And 47% want support for family carers around diagnosis and around bereavement. So thinking about how we support family carers then, um, in particular with decision-making. So they wanted support with decision-making. And this is something that I've been doing some research on for some time now. We know that family carers really struggle with making decisions. We know that the majority of people living with dementia will live in the community. Now that might be in their own home, it might be living with their family, so their son, their daughter and their families, or it might be living in a, a care home, residential nursing home. There's about the latest statistics, or these are, more or less certainly an underestimate, is about 700,000 people who are friends or family acting as a carer for someone with dementia in the UK. We know, like I said earlier, it's one of the most difficult forms of caring. And we know from previous research, multiple studies, that there's high levels of depression, emotional distress, physical strain among family carers um, of people living with dementia compared to carers of people of physical impairments. Now, importantly, when it comes to decision making, what we also know is that many people will reach the end of life without having planned for their end of life, without having thought about what they would like, what treatments they would like, what care they would like, how they would like that care provided. It's not as simple about whether I want to be resuscitated or not. It might have multiple other things within that. So where would I like to be cared for? Who would I like to be cared for by? And we know that part of the reason that this planning is not always done is because we don't all want to talk about mortality. I mean, I do this for my work and I talk about it a lot, but I often don't talk about my own mortality with my relatives, with my loved ones. And so this is quite common. We don't always want to talk about it. So what happens is that person loses capacity and then the professionals look to the families to say, well, what did they want? What would they want from this? How should we do this? Um, so those decisions, in particular end of life decisions, are really emotive and really um, difficult for family carers at times. So we've done um, some interviews with family carers over the last few years to look at, well, how do you make those decisions? And this is a model, so the references at the bottom if you want to look at it in more detail. But this is a, a bit of a model which um, I hope will help guide discussions and conversations about um, providing care for people living with dementia when talking to both people with dementia but also family carers. So surrounding the process of making decisions is this context. So we need to think about well, what planning has been done, is there a lasting power of attorney, what legal um, aspects have already been done, what's the capacity and the health and the well-being of that person living with dementia. So how can we include them in these decision-making processes? Um, thinking about what were their personal preferences? Have they ever shared this with you? What support do you have around you? And then we've put these seven stages. They're in a, in a bit of a circle because it's not a linear process. And um, these stages can be, um, you can go back and forth these different stages over different periods of time. But ultimately thinking about identifying who this decision maker is um, and who is part of that, so who's got lasting power of attorney or who's closest to them if there isn't an LPA. 
um, thinking about sharing and exchanging information. So what information do you need to know? How do you find that out? Who do you talk to? Clarify the values and the preferences of those that are involved. So what was the values and the preferences of the person with dementia? What are the values and preferences of you as a family and as a carer if you didn't know everything about that person with dementia or they didn't explicitly express what they wanted? Managing emotions. So this could be managing the emotions of you as a family carer or you know, your relatives and loved ones around you, but also how you ensure that you don't cause distress to the person with dementia. Uh, considering the feasibility of these different options, so if it's about moving into the care home, for example, or thinking about I need some more support at home, what's the feasibility of them going into a care home? What's the feasibility of them staying at home and balancing those up, thinking about the different options that you've got and what the pros and cons or, or the feasibility of doing either of those is? And then, as I say, balancing that and then reflecting on that. So this is a bit of an overview um, of, of how a, a decision making process might work. So when we were doing this, we were really thinking about, well, how can we support uh, family carers with their decisions? And one of the ways we thought about this was the development of decision aids. So there's been quite a lot of work on decision aids over the years in healthcare, uh, particularly around um, provision of decision aids to help um, people who are going into surgery. So whether to have surgery or not, or what procedures to have. So there is some precedence with that. Um, now, a decision aid is, is a, a tool or a document um, that's designed to help you make a very specific and deliberated choice. So it will specify what the decision is that needs to be made and provide you information about those different options available to you and what potential outcomes are of those different options. So it might be, like I said, um, you're struggling at home with, with mum who's got dementia and you're thinking, I don't know what to do. So the decision is, I need to do something about getting more support for mum at home because I'm not coping. And the options might be for you to get some carers in, it might be for you to move her into a, a care home, a residential home, for example. So what those are the two options, what are the potential outcomes, what's the implications of those, what's the pros and cons, and it helps you think through that process. So it might include information about the disease or the condition, health risk factors, giving you opinions of other people. So what did other carers say? What did the professionals say about when you should move your mum into a care home, for example? What have other people done in your situation? Um, and it might provide you some guidance and coaching. So we wanted to develop one that would support people living, well, family carers of people living with dementia um, who are approaching the end of life. Um, so we, we co-produced a decision. So we worked really closely with both people living with dementia and also family carers, as well as health and social care professionals. So we, starting in the left-hand corner here in this left, left bubble, we reviewed what existing decision aids were out there and what they looked like, what they consisted of, were they effective, did they do anything to help people? We did some interviews then with people living with dementia about, well, what decisions do you think people need to make? How would you want them to make those decisions? Um, and we also did, some interviews with carers as well, both current and bereaved about well, what are the decisions you've had to make or you're having to make or you made in the past um, and how did you make those? So trying to get really understanding of that. And then we had some theory of, of decision making and decision aids. And then through a process of co-production workshops, uh, we presented all this information and worked very closely over a series of different workshops with people living with dementia and family carers to produce a, a co-produced uh, decision aid. 
So these were the four main areas that uh, we, we included in our decision aid. So we had four decisions. So the first one being around changes in care, and that's the example I've given about struggling at home. How can I get some more help? Is it moving them into a care home? Is it about increasing the number of people that come in to support me at home? What can I do? Um, eating and drinking difficulties, which is a common problem in people living with dementia, especially towards the later stages. Um, swallowing difficulties, not able to swallow food, not able to swallow liquids, etc. And medication as well, another big issue. Ensuring the everyday well-being of the person living with dementia. Um, and then healthcare tests and medications. So heading towards the end of life, what, what tests do they need to keep having? Uh, what medications do they still need to have, if they, especially if they're having swallowing difficulties? Are there alternative ways to deliver these? Or is it a medication that actually is not going to have any short-term benefits for them? It's about benefits in 15, 20 years when we know actually they're approaching the end of life and they may not have benefits anymore. <clears throat> so what did it look like then? So the format was a, a paper-based decision aid. It, you could download it as a PDF and print it off or we posted it to people in our study. It was a very interactive um, uh, booklet decision aid where there was a lot of white space to allow you to reflect um, on kind of uh, the consequences and the outcomes of different decisions. It posed questions uh, to, to encourage you to reflect on what you wanted, what you thought the person with dementia would have wanted, encouraged you to have discussions with the person with dementia if possible um, and encouraged you to have discussions with with health and social care professionals as well so it provided some information around written text it provided faqs it provided some top tips around how to provide support in these areas or what to do in these situations provided some myth busters so there's a lot of myths out there about dementia especially when it came to eating and drinking for example so we want to bust some of those myths and we had a true false section so I'll show you that in a second and then we also had some quotes from the interviews and from our PPI that we worked with um, that was quotes from people living with dementia um, and family carers as well so overall we provided the decisions that were the most common ones people talked to us or the overarching ones the options available to people pros and cons with those and then the consequences or potential outcomes and this is what it looks like. Um, so I can't show you in full on this, but um, this is what it would look like. So you would have an explanation around what the decision might be. Um, and then they could specifically say what they thought the decision was that they were finding difficult at that time. Why do you need to make it? And it would help you really reflect on making that decision if you're a family carer. This is the myth buster section here where, for example, the myth at the top, so people continue to eat as much as, at the end of life as they always have, that's false. Um, increasing loss of appetite is normal as dementia progresses, that's true. So it was just trying to give some people a bit of um, understanding and an approach there. So we did a, a, a small feasibility study. So we did a study for six months looking at um, how this went, how this worked with family carers, what they thought of that, and whether it changed anything really. The main purpose of the feasibility study, this is a small sample. So the main purpose of this was to see, well, can we actually run this kind of study? Um, and then we're hoping to do a much larger evaluation of this where we can answer those questions as to whether it makes a difference with a, a, a larger amount of people um, 
in the study. So we targeted 30 family carers who are um, caring for someone towards the end of life. Um, we then did a series of different outcome measures for them at, at the start, and then again at three months and again at six months. We looked at the decisional conflict. So that's how confident, how informed do they feel about making decisions, um, the, their quality of life as a carer, their distress as a carer. So how distressed did they feel, their satisfaction with end of life care. And then we also measured uh, what services they used as well. So unfortunately, um, we received the ethical approval about a week after we started to go into lockdown. So we weren't able to run the study as we initially hoped. We were hoping to recruit people from hospitals um, and care homes. Unfortunately, we, we obviously couldn't do that at the start of COVID. So we had to turn to some other uh, methods of recruitment. But we did recruit about 26 of our 30 family carers we wanted. So that was 87%, so we were quite happy with that. And 20 of those remained in the study. What we found was 25% said they found it really helpful being in the study and 55% said they found it a little helpful at six months. Um, and as you can see from this quote here, this was one of the participants saying it was really useful. It was the first time I had had something comprehensive that I could refer to. Now, like I say, these, this was on a small sample, so we can't infer anything really from these results, but we can see that they're heading in the right direction. So the highlighted bit, so this is the decisional conflict scale. So how confident or how informed do they feel, for example, about making decisions? So this is a negative figure, so it's dropped. So between the start and six months, it decreased by uh, two points. Um, and then again, we measured that without going into too much detail, we measured the, the decisional conflict in two different ways. So we measured it based on a single decision they were making and then collectively about how um, confident they felt about all decisions that they were making. So again, that reduced, we saw a reduction in distress um, and we saw a, a slight increase in satisfaction with care and then um, about stable with, with quality of life. So. We then followed up people at the end of that after six months and we did some qualitative interviews with them. So we interviewed them about what, how they'd use the decision aid. If they didn't use it, why didn't you? What would encourage you to use it in future, et cetera. And these were the four main themes that we developed based on the analysis. So people were telling us it was used as a, a kind of emotional companion. It helped them to manage their emotions, to feel reassured about their feelings, about how they were doing. Um, but it also generated a lot of emotions as well, and, and some quite um, were upset with that, but actually felt that it was helpful because it helped them realise what was happening and prepared them a little bit more as well. Um, and they felt more informed about the unpredictable nature of dementia and the trajectory of the dementia. So overall, they said that the decision aid reduced the feeling of being alone and increased the feeling of being supported through being informed, by feeling prepared and, and being reassured. Some went on to discuss how the decision aid really empowered conversations um, and gave them some confidence. So it empowered conversations between family members um, as well as with health and social care professionals. Um, and what they also talked about was it broke down that complexity. So it made some of these quite challenging, complex decisions um, easier to deal with, easier to think about and, and manage. Um, it obviously didn't make them easy, but it helped with those decision-making processes. Um, but what they also talked about was actually there wasn't always the opportunity to use that um, in that way, because for some people, they were too advanced and a lot of these decisions had already been made. 
they didn't feel that it had the, they had the opportunity to use it. It was a bit too late for them. Um, but people used it in different ways. So some people used it to plan for the future. Some people used it to uh, think about current decisions they were having to make. And then some people, such as this that I've said about that it was a bit too late for them, they said, well, actually, we still used it to reflect on decisions and to reassure ourselves that we did the right thing by putting mummy in a care home, for example. Um, none of the participants, unfortunately, used the decision aid that much with the person living with dementia, again, because they thought it was a bit too late, they didn't think they'd understand, they thought that it might get a bit too distressed by it at that point. So there was a bit of a missed opportunity there and we felt that we could have um, include, used it earlier in the course of dementia. So a couple of quotes here, um, used it more as a checklist, things I would normally bury my head in, in the sand about a little bit. It was more of, this is what you've got to deal with, you can't block these things out, you've got to plan. Um, and in general, it's helping me move towards not being so overwhelmed by decisions. So that's a bit of, of what we've done with family carers in the last um, couple of years. And now I'm going to very briefly just talk about um, what we've done previously uh, with, with professionals as well. So um, we wanted to think about, again, how we can support professionals with decision making. We didn't want to develop another pathway or another guideline. We wanted something that was quite um, applied, quite simple, quite pragmatic. Um, and so we wondered, could we develop some kind of rules of thumb? And so we wanted to see if we could develop something like this fast rule of thumb that's often used for stroke diagnosis. So facial weakness, arm weakness, speech problems, time to call 999. Very sim simple, very quick, prompts you to think and leads you into an action. So could we develop something similar for professionals caring for people with dementia? And this was very optimistic. We didn't quite manage it as simple as that. But what we did do is we developed some flowcharts. And this is an example of one um, around agitation and restlessness. So this one is around how do we how do we know if someone's agitated? How do we support them? What can we do? So they've broken down into three simple blocks here. So as a professional, you need to think about, well, look for the underlying cause. Agitation and restlessness may not always be caused by the dementia. You know, we all get hot and bothered. We all get fed up and agitated. We don't all have dementia. So think about what's going on there. Think about has anything changed for this person? And on the reverse side of this page, which I haven't shown here, there's some prompts. So think about what has changed. Is there an environmental cause? So have they moved room? Has the colour of the paint in the room changed? Is there a physical cause? So do they have some underlying arthritis? Um, have they got mouth ulcers? What's going on? Um, is the, is the carer struggling to support them? So anything that affects the, the carer is going to indirectly affect the person with dementia. And if you identify any of those items, then treat that problem, treat that cause. But what you might find is that there is no identifiable cause. Um, and that's not a failure. So our family carers that worked with us in developing these were keen to say, if you can't find a cause, that's not a failure of you as a professional. Sometimes it's, you just can't find that. So think about some other non-drug treatments. Think about playing some music. Think about some massage therapy um, or whatever else that might be available to you. So in the corner, there's a QR code. So if you scan that, it will take you to the full pack of rules of thumb. So we've got one on agitation and restlessness. We've got one on routine care, one on eating and drinking difficulties, and one on stopping um, treatments and, and, and procedures at the end of life. So 
thinking about where they are now. So that has now been developed into this much larger program or package um, headed up by um, the NHS England in Manchester, Strategic Partnership in Manchester. They've developed this program called the Six Steps, and this is a, a team that, or a, a, not a team, sorry, a package of, of uh, training that includes the rules of thumb to train uh, care home staff in how to provide palliative and end-of-life care for people living with dementia. Um, and so they have been used by quite a lot of different teams. They've been used in clinical practice um, throughout uh, the UK, um, they have been very successful and like I said, if you have a look at that QR code and I can send the link as well um, and have a look and, and look through those. So just aware of time, so I'm just coming towards the end of, of what I wanted to talk about today. I thought I'd finish off on how we've, we've talked about supporting professionals and we've talked about uh, supporting family carers. I want to just talk about how we, we're now pulling that together in this large project uh, called Embed Care. Now, Embed Care is a, is a six-year piece of work. What we're trying to do is really leave a step change in palliative dementia care. We're trying to create new networks of care. Uh, we're trying to create a network of engagement and, and research to redevelop really capacity in this field. We are developing new knowledge and we're going to pilot a model of care to empower people with dementia, carers and staff uh, to identify and act on the changing physical, psychosocial, spiritual needs um, across different settings. And then we are developing and, and we're going to deliver a model of integrated palliative dementia care. So trying to pull that across different teams of, of um, people supporting people with dementia towards the end of life. And then we're building this capacity in, in dementia, develop, delivering an imaginative um, public engagement. So we are hosting a, um, an event at the Science Gallery in uh, London, and we're also hosting an event at the Science Museum Lates, which again um, is a big um, museum event where we can talk about death and dying and, and living with dementia uh, for different audiences, specifically targeting younger audiences to get those people talking about. So this is a little bit of a summary of what we're going at what we're doing and it's just really to flag and highlight the, the, the depth and the differences of work that's happening. So we've got a lot of policy work, uh, so reviewing policies and guidelines as to what's out there to inform what a model of palliative dementia care should look like. We're doing some large data to look at uh, where people are when they're end of life, so where do they transition to and from, what's the inequalities in care, what does end of life care look like for people with dementia. We've then got a large cohort studies where we're uh, recruiting um, a group of people living with dementia and their family carers and we're following them up over a 12 month period looking at what their needs are, what are their unmet needs over time and this will help us understand what we should be doing with our services and, and what services should look like. Then in these two work streams what we're doing is we're taking all this information um, to develop this new palliative care model that we hope we can then trial, and it's coming to that point now, where we're going to trial this model, this new approach to delivering palliative dementia care in care homes and um, in the community at home as well. So I wanted to focus on the, the bit that I worked on or I led, and this was the um, co-design elements, and this was developing the new uh, model of uh, palliative dementia care. So as I've said, we have pulled on these three first 
work packages, this early work, all this evidence, all this data to understand what are the palliative care needs of people living with dementia and how do we address those and how do we support that. We've then um, done a series of co-design workshops to really um, build up and develop um, our, our new model. And our model focuses on holistic assessment and as you might have guessed, uh, how we support people making decisions about that assessment. So what are the unmet needs of this person living with dementia and how do we then support those needs? So providing an assessment and then providing a set of decision support tools to help the user with that. Now, this is applicable. It can be used by the someone living with dementia if they can do that, the family carer, but also the health and social or healthcare professional at this stage. Um, so they would each uh, fill out a, a holistic assessment and then that would link them to some decision support tools to help them uh, deal with the results of that assessment. So we're doing this through um, an app company called Atonix. So they, the holistic assessment and the decision support tools are going to be hosted on an app um, and the family carer, the person with dementia and the healthcare professional or the social care professional would have access to that um, and be able to monitor the symptoms and unmet needs and what happens with those. So this is just a, a couple of photos. So we've heavily invested in co-design in this project. Um, this was a deep group up in Bradford that we worked with and then some health and social care professionals that we um, worked with in London coming from across the different um, parts of, of the UK within this project. So we've done a series of online workshops, we've done a couple of in-person workshops and then we've done some used testing as well. So the embed care framework is what we've called our new model of care. So it consists of these kind of uh, four parts really. Um, so we've got a part which helps us understand the needs um, concerns. So this is the ICOS DEM. So this is a holistic assessment. So it looks at the physical, psychosocial, and spiritual concerns and needs um, of the person living with dementia and the family carers. So you complete that questionnaire. That will then tell you what the priorities or help you think about what the priorities of care and the goals of care should be for that individual. So based on these concerns that we've identified, what should we prioritize? What should we really think about? That will automatically then trigger some alerts that will lead you to some uh, clinical decision support tools. So it'll help you think about, well, Mr. James is in, in pain. How do I how do I assess that properly or fully? And how do I treat that and find the cause of that? So the decision support tools would help with that. And really, overall, what this is doing is really facilitating this shared decision making process between the person with dementia, family carer and the practitioner. And all this is supported by um, a, a series of resources. So we've developed some manuals for that. We've developed some um, uh, training videos as well, some, some cartoon videos, which train people on how to use this different, um, this, this uh, framework. And then just lastly, I just wanted to show you what is included in this framework. So these are the 12 decision areas that we've got. So we've got pain, mobility, sleep, delirium, skin care, emotional well-being. So this is what the assessment looks at. And these we'd have a decision support tool for each of these 12 areas then. And that's what our decision support tool looks like. So if Mr. James has completed the questionnaire and there's a problem with sleep, it would take you to this decision support tool where you think about, well, how do I assess this further? What could be the causes of this? And then how would I manage? How would I treat that? 
And so this, again, very simple, very pragmatic, very applied. And that's what we were looking for. We didn't want endless lists of, of guidance. We really wanted um, something quite quick and easy for people to look at. And this is what it looks like on, a, on an app. So this will be um, Nathan Tess would be the patient, for example. And this is how you'd fill in the questionnaire. And this would be the results of that questionnaire then. So we can see that they've got slight shortness of breath, they've got slight pain, they've got slight weakness um, and energy. And so from that, you would then be able to click in uh, for shortness of breath, and it would take you to the decision support tools that relate to that um, particular item. Um, and that's what it would look like. Um, and so we're just going out to test that now. So we're working with some care homes um, and some community teams in Surrey and Derby, uh, Derbyshire um, to test this for, for six months in a bit of a feasibility and then onto a pilot trial uh, early next year. So that was a bit of a, a whistle-stop tour of a few different areas. So I guess that I just wanted to pull it all together a little bit and think about our concluded conclusions, what can we make from all of what I've talked about tonight. So the general public knowledge is it still needs to be improved really it's still uh, fairly lacking about dementia and about palliative care in particular we need to think less about time and the prognosis in terms of time and think about need for these individuals so we need to take a needs-based approach and think about need um, and what those needs are and how we meet those needs doesn't need to be complex some of the things that we're developing to support people so those rules of thumb those flowcharts that have been really successful they've been implemented in practice they're being used by people now are very simple very very easy to use very um, applied doesn't need to be anything too complicated we also need to think about how we include people living with dementia so i'm very aware that a lot of the work that i've done in the past hasn't always included people living with dementia in the in in the final project so um for example that decision aid we encouraged family carers to use it with people living with dementia but we didn't we could have done more to really encourage that and to really include people living with dementia they helped us develop it but then the outcome is is not really um always helpful or beneficial for them. So we need to think about how we do that better. And Embed is, is really at the forefront of that and really trying to look at how we can include people with dementia and ensure that they, they're able to use these and, and work with carers. And I think a bit of a controversial statement, um, but very key, we need to remember that not everyone wants to talk about um, end of life. Not everyone wants to talk about planning for their future. It's not for everyone. So advanced care planning is not for everyone. And that's not a problem. There are alternatives out there. There are ways, like I've talked to you about the decision aid, the embed care framework tonight, the rules of thumb that can help you make those decisions. And those can be used to host discussions with people living with dementia and think about what they want or what they would want going forward. And so just to end, just a big thank you for everyone coming on a, on a Tuesday evening. Um, and here's some of the acknowledgements of the, the research. And just thank you to everyone who's taken part in all these studies over the years. So thank you. Right. Well, thank you ever so much, Nathan. We've got um, quite a number of questions, actually. Uh, so uh, I'll read some of these out. I'm going to start with uh, Mike Godwin's uh, question. Mike uh, was Beatrice uh, Godwin's uh, husband and uh, a widow, and he's got a question here. I know. Oh, sorry. My, sorry. Uh, my questions moved to somebody's put another one in. So excuse that. Laps there. Uh, I know that Beatrice believed that dementia as a cause of death was going unrecognised by the establishment. 
I see you now find that this is the main cause of death. How can the medical and legal professions be persuaded that dementia is the actual cause of death? Uh, so that's a question from Mike. I mean, it is changing. Um, so certainly amongst the, the medical professionals, that is changing. Um, unfortunately, not amongst everyone. So, for example, there was um, a colleague of mine who's a nurse in a, in a hospital um, who called me a couple of weeks ago and said they're actually they're having some difficulties with some of the um, the consultants in other parts of the hospital that don't necessarily always um, work with people living with dementia and thinking that they can cure it. Uh, thinking that they can do all this different treatment when actually the person's got severe dementia, they're towards the end of life and they just don't accept the dementia as terminal. So it is still a problem. I, I, I agree with that. Um, but hopefully it is changing. And it's through doing work like this and really engaging with lots of different teams that we can do that. And we see more and more dementia specialists, for example, working in hospitals and working with these different teams and educating them. Um, so it's the, the big thing is that dementia is not just something that one team is going to deal with. You know, it's a big problem that we, we're all going to come across in our lifetimes and certainly working in the medical field, they are going to come across that. So um, I don't think there's one perfect solution, but hopefully it is changing and, and this um, awareness and things like this public engagement work that we're doing is hopefully having an impact on that really. Great, thank you. Um, so I'll go up to a question uh, from Bethany Simmons. Um, so uh, Bethany put this question in quite early on um, when you were talking about defining end-of-life care in dementia. So she said, thanks for the great talk, Nathan. I just wondered whether you thought that the term dementia can sometimes be too much of an umbrella term, which can be stigmatising, uh, and whether perhaps specific disease terms should be used, uh, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, etc. It could also perhaps help to reflect the heterogeneity experiences and the needs of different patient groups? Yes, um, definitely. So I think the issue we've got with a lot of the research, uh, for example, around symptoms and uh, prognosis and things like that, um, as a lot of it comes from the Alzheimer's disease. Um, there is a lack of research in more specific uh, different types of dementia, especially the rarer types of dementia. And so I would agree that what we need to do more of going forward is be really specific about well, what types of dementia are we talking about? Um, and that will help uh, to distinguish some of the differences between that. So uh, just this afternoon, we've had a PPI group meeting for Embed actually, um, which I was chairing. And the, in that group, we've got people that um, were caring for young onset dementia, so prior on disease dementia, for example, we've got people there with that were caring for someone with Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia. So we've got that variety and we really need to start picking that apart, I think, when we're doing these studies and thinking about the different types of dementia and, and, and teasing that out and the heterogeneity in that. So I 100% agree with you. I think that's, that's really a big thing we need to do. Right, thank you. Uh, so the next question is from somebody who's anonymous. They've put so much of this decision making needs to be done before the person with dementia has palliative care needs. How can we best engage people in advanced care planning before they might interact with a palliative care team? I mean, uh, there's an argument to have about when palliative care starts. And so that's what I was kind of talking about is this prognosis and moving away from this time kind of limited period. So palliative care needs will be there right through throughout its terminal condition. Palliative care is there for people who've got terminal condition. Um, and so this palliative needs will be there right from the from the offset, really. And that might be some more psychosocial needs, um, for example. So we should try and engage in discussions about 
you know, the future as early as possible. Advanced care planning is, is a process and planting those seeds early on and just having that evolving discussion and evolving conversation is, is, you know, what we would ideally want to see. But we also do need to respect, and I'm a big believer in that, that not everyone does want to talk about their end of life or plan for their end of life. So we do need to be careful and think about, well, you know, in those circumstances, what do we do? Is there a way that we can have those discussions in a different way uh, that make them feel comfortable? Or is it um, working with families in a different way as well? So a lot of these interventions that I've talked about today are for when advanced care planning hasn't been done or you know the legalities of it are not all there and straightforward um so what do we do because we know there's a lot of people that still don't do advanced care planning and don't want to um and as much as we can push that and support that what do we do in the interim where people haven't always got an advanced care plan and so it's about supporting families or supporting professionals in those situations and that's what a lot of my work is really focused on Great, thank you very much. So there is a question here about um, families and there's also a comment uh, from somebody else. So I'll, I'll read both of these out. So this question is from Stephen Mason. He says, there always seems to be an assumption in discussion of care of the elderly and end of life care that everybody has family. There are hundreds of thousands of people who have no family, especially younger family who might be in a position to care, uh, but who might not. How might their needs be addressed? And then there's also a related comment by um, Kate uh, Woodthorpe, who's a co-director of CDAS. And she says, this is a great question, Stephen. And you see it within a lot of end of life services and post-death with funerals too. An assumption there's an existing family and that they're willing to step up or in. Even if there are existing family, they may not wish or want to be involved. Yeah, so it's, I agree. It's a really interesting and important topic, really. Um, and it's a whole field in itself is we are going to see more and more people living with dementia without a family around them. Um, and how we support those people is really crucial. And again, this is actually something that did come up in our PPI um, group this afternoon about how we deal with that and how we, we support those people. And I think that we need some investment in that to think about how we support these people who are gonna be living longer, uh, living with dementia, but also living alone. Um, and in terms of existing family, even if they have family, you're right, they don't, you know, they're not always going to be wanting to provide care and, and be there. And that's one of my bug, big bugbears is when people talk about loved ones um, in, in dementia care research, because, Unfortunately, not everyone is necessarily loved by their family, and we need to remember that, that they might have family, but they might not want to be involved. Um, so I, in all honesty, I don't have an answer for that. Um, I think it's a, a huge piece of work that is needed to be done. Um, and I'm, I think that that is starting to be looked at, but there's a long way to go with that, about how we support people living with dementia who might not have anyone around them to support them and how we align services and, and interventions that we're developing to support those people, really. Great, thank you for that. Uh, so this um, question is also from somebody who's uh, kept themselves anonymous. They say, you mentioned dementia is a holistic care, but that is not what my experience has been, especially with regard to dementia patients, perhaps for cancer patients, but palliative care is given at the very end of life, and this takes the form of anticipatory uh, drugs or injections. 
or is my experience atypical as it relates to someone with a racialized uh, minority background? Uh, additionally, this person says, I also feel professional carers are hesitant to talk about end of life uh, care stage with uh, when patients' relatives mention it. Yeah, you're not you're not alone there at all. Um, so I, what I'm saying is, is dementia care should be holistic. Um, and we should be thinking of it holistically, but unfortunately we know that's not always the case. So we know that a lot of people living with dementia don't get access to palliative care. Um, and we know that they don't always receive the best end of life care. Um, I think that there, there is a change, um, that care is improving. There's a lot more awareness of it, uh, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and you know, we think of cancer care as, a, as the gold standard in palliative care, don't we? Um, but definitely there is more to be done. In terms of inequalities as well, again, there's masses to be done there in terms of um, thinking about um, understanding inequalities in dementia care and in, in palliative care. So one of my PhD students is looking at um, uh, inequalities in accessing palliative care in dementia for people from ethnic minority groups, specifically focusing on uh, Black Afro-Caribbean uh, populations. Okay, great. Uh, we're running out of time, unfortunately, so I think this will have to be the, the last question. Um, this is a question from Tony Walter, who um, is a previous director of the Research Centre. Uh, he says, a core component of palliative care is a patient's choices. So with dementia, palliative care, uh, these needs to be elicitated as early as possible through advanced care planning, as you argue. Palliative care originated in England, which, along with other Anglophile and Northwest European societies, is amongst the most individualistic on the planet. We idolise independence and fear dependency. This is not true in many of the cultures, not least Mediterranean and several East Asian societies, where being cared for can be valued more highly than choice making. Do such countries approach dementia palliative care differently? Yes, in some, I think in some ways they do. Um, so there's, we've just done a, a really interesting piece of work with Jenny Vandersteen and a team from uh, Japan, and we've looked at developing a, a model of what good palliative dementia care looks like, and that's been really interesting. We've done, um, it was our turn as, as researchers to be in the focus group as participants, it's really interesting to debate and discuss what we thought was important from our research. So what we were discussing was presenting our own research that we've done in our own countries and what the priorities were and discussing the differences. And there were some differences and certainly things about expectations of care from families and inclusion in the family um, and having a value in society. There was key differences there. Um, and there was also a lot of differences around specifically around spirituality in, in end of life care and palliative care for dementia. So there are differences. And I think there's lessons that can be learned. Uh, there's definitely things we, we do well. And there's things that we don't do quite so well that other countries like, you know, Japan or the Netherlands or wherever it might be that do. But there are definitely differences um, because there's cultural differences as well. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, so we've got a um, a lot more questions left to go, but I'm afraid we'll have to end it there because we've run out of time. So perhaps we'll have to ask Nathan back another time um, uh, because um, it's often obviously elicited a lot of um, discussion. So thank you very much for attending. We are going to put the uh, presentation on our website online for people to watch later on if you want to go back to it again or if you feel that uh, somebody might have benefited from it and has missed it and um, 
do follow us on Twitter if you would um, like to hear more about our events and we'll continue to do uh, free events and uh, in conversation talks uh, over the coming months. So thank you very much to everybody for attending and thank you uh, very much to Nathan uh, for his talk and it's um, really fits the theme well uh, of the Beatrice Godwin lecture. So thanks again. Thanks very much everyone.